Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions and games. And today, Brendan and I are giving you our top 10 best games of all time. And the reason we're doing this is because thanks to our Golden Geek nomination and being noticed on the Board Game Barrage podcast as well, we have an influx of new listeners lately. So it might be a good idea just to give you a better sense of who we are as people, the games that we enjoy, so that you have that context as you listen to our new episodes going forward as we review games or maybe explore some of our back catalog that might leave you scratching your head about how exactly did Jake get to this rating? on this beloved game. Yeah, I think so much of the time, you know, that I spend listening to board game media, Jake, I'm always helped by when I have a good understanding of the biases that someone, a reviewer is bringing to the table. And I think we've always tried to be really transparent and clear about the types of games we tend to enjoy. That tends to inform how we think about the games we play. The last time that we did a top 10 or a top anything episode outside of when we rank games at the end of every year was all the way back in episode 33. Uh, We did a top 10. So we're going to spend some time in this episode also talking a little bit about how games ranked in that top 10, uh, where those fall on our list now, or even if they're on our list now. Before we get into that main topic, we like to do just some very brief housekeeping at the very beginning of each episode. And what we'd like to announce this week is that the Golden Geek voting for best podcast and all the other games and categories listed is now open on Board Game Geek. There's a link to go vote over in the description of this podcast. So you can use that link. Uh, If you have any questions about how to vote, hit us up in the Discord, also linked, and we will make sure to make it easy for you to cast your vote. And of course, we're going to encourage you to vote for Decision Space for Best Podcast. Yeah, it means so much that we were even nominated and having you vote for us and maybe even cracking into the top three or something uh, in the actual award stage would be incredible for the show, just like being nominated has. So if you just take the one minute out of your life to do that, it would literally give us thousands of minutes back in terms of people listening and engaging with the show and helping us take things to a new level. So if you have the time and if you're listening to this right when it comes out, you still have a day or two left, please just go ahead and vote for the show in the Golden Geeks. And thank you so much to all of you who already have. And let's be concrete. Voting ends on Sunday, May 7th. So there should be five days to vote after this episode comes out. The second piece of housekeeping to say is Brendan and I created this our top 10 list by doing a pub meeple ranking system that spit out a lot more games than just the top 10. So Brendan and I are both going to make our top 50 games available for people to uh, peruse, look at, make fun of, laugh at (laughs) uh, on the Discord. And also we'll share those to the Decision Space website, which is decisionspacepodcast.com. In addition to that, I'm going to write a sentence or two about each of the games in my top 50 list. And I'm going to put that on our Patreon page as just an exclusive perk to say thank you to everyone who is a patron of our show. So yeah, so that's it for the housekeeping. Brendan, what do you say we get into our main topic here? So just to go over the format a little bit, Jake and I did pub meeple rankings of any games we thought could be candidates for being in, I guess, our top 50, uh, and then saw where those games shook out. I don't know if for you, Jake, I did a, a little bit of judging here and there. If I saw a game that I was sort of like, 
This Not game me. is way too low. I don't know what the algorithm was thinking. I would adjust that slightly to kind of have something reflective. Jake here has let the, the robots take I, full control yeah. of his list. You know, for me, this is just a snapshot in time. I did a yeah. top 10, honestly, a month ago or something. And this one spit out a pretty different list. Um, I think both are totally valid. A lot's going to come down to literally the emotional state I'm in as I'm clicking through that thing. So I think maybe I'm less precious about my list and what it says about me at this point in my gaming you know, experience than I was at other certain points where I was like, I'm really like defined by this list. But there are definitely important themes here that you'll see in my list uh, that I think will give you a good sense of who I am. This is the top 10 best games of all time that I'm presenting right now. And two weeks from now, I'm certain that my list would change. Nice. And for me, I just, Jake, looked at games that I really love and also games I was really excited to be playing right now was kind of my criteria. So that's that's where things shook out. I think we should start now with that little bit of like honorable mentions, games that fell off our list. Does that make sense to you to do? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did. I'm taking a slightly different angle than you, but why don't you go first with the games you feel are important to mention before we get into our top tens? Yeah, so interestingly, folks who listen to the last top 10 will know that modern art was on my top 10. It was number three previously on my list, and it actually just barely fell off. I love modern art. I think it's a fantastic auction game, but I haven't played it a lot recently, and I've had some other Kinesia games just that have hit the table a little bit more frequently, so that one's bumped down. Barrage is a game we covered this year, Jake, that I absolutely love that didn't quite make the top 10, but it was really close. Uh, The Fox in the Forest is another game that I love, a two-player trick-taking game that has really fat awesome decisions both in the tactical play the turn to turn structure but also strategically how you're approaching if you're gonna try to be the player who's gonna win as many tricks as possible or lose just enough tricks that was previously my number eight and now is just outside the top 10 uh, and some other games that were previously on there and fell off but are still i would say in my top 20 have to go to the website to find out are blue lagoon the castles of burgundy Lost Cities and Kanagawa, all really great games that I still enjoy that have fallen for different reasons. Blue Lagoon kind of got replaced. I won't say by what, maybe we'll get into it later. Uh, The Castles of Burgundy, I think is a fantastic game, but I find myself a little bit more drawn to In the Year of the Dragon these days in terms of my Feld. But we're playing a game right now and I'm loving it. So to Jake, to your point, maybe ask me in, in a month or two. Lost Cities and Kanagawa are just great. Just haven't played them a ton or feel like I'm kind of seeing what the game has to offer and love the experience, but it's not exciting me to the level that it once did. My City's awesome game. Go listen to those episodes. It's an amazing experience. It just didn't crack the top 10. Awesome. No, I think those are a ton of great games listed. And yeah, it's so interesting when we think about these lists. You know, are we thinking just the way that you're framing how your rankings things can change so much, right? Is it a game you love but aren't playing as much versus a game that you think maybe is like objectively one you wouldn't recommend as highly, but you're just loving it so much right now. And then you see those ranked up against each other. What do you pick? Yeah. And I'm also interject really quickly to say I'm totally going to contradict myself. And in my top five, have a game I haven't played in like three years. Two yeah. Years. That's just, uh, you know, that's being life. human. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, So for me, for my honorable mentions, I looked through my list of top 10 games and realized I didn't have a single party game in there or a single cooperative game in there, which obviously tells you something about who I am. But I wanted to shout out my favorite games in those two categories. 
uh, for for people who really enjoy those. So I had four party games within my top 20. Uh, so I had The Resistance coming in at, at number 14. And that was previously number eight for me. So Clover coming in at number 16. Wavelength at number 17. And Just One at number 20. Those are just all fantastic games that could any one of them crack my top 10 on a different day if I was more in that party game mood or whatever. So, you know, I just recommend all those games so highly. Great games that really sing when you have a fun group of people around. And then my second list of honorable mentions is cooperative games. Uh, so I had The Mind at number 11. So the one that just missed that game is polarizing, but every experience I've had with it has just been magic. Absolutely love it, even if it's not really a game at all, arguably. Eon Zen came in at number 22, Spirit Island at 32, and Arkham Horror Living Card Game at 38. Previously, my number four game. So what happened? <laughs> you know, I haven't played it so much over the past two years since we've done yeah. that. I think I started uh, one of the new campaigns playing solo, didn't finish it. It's just so daunting, the setup of the game to get it out. My wife has been out of town for three months and I kind of thought to myself like this would be a great time to do some solo board gaming and I just haven't been called to play it. And so it's like, if not now, when? So that's what caused such a a plummeting fall for that one, but still a fantastic game. And especially if you like cooperative or debt construction genres, it has my highest recommendation. That one comes up all the time too, as like there's examples of good design in there and decisions that are interesting. Uh, so that's still of interest to me. And it last became of interest when you mentioned it on episode 33, where we talked about those past 10 games, but it's interesting to see it fall so much. Also, Jake, the mind at number 11. I'm so happy and so here for seeing the best party trick ever printed, almost cracking your top 10. I think yeah. it's great. I think the mind is just like, if people want to be fussy about the mind, that's fine. It's not for everyone. But when it hits... It's just so special. It captures everything about a good magic circle and it puts it in like a Ziploc bag size game, which is really tough to do and really brilliant. Yeah, couldn't agree more. All right, Brendan, what do you say? Let's do this. Let's do it. Top 10 games of all time. And mine's going to be like the objectively correct list and you're doing something a little different, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, I'm doing the objectively my own opinion list. But no, mine's objectively right too because this is our top 10s. So this is indisputably the right list correct but 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 that we are decision space so it wouldn't just be an episode of decision space if we didn't kind of try to come at our top 10 from that angle so where possible jake i'm going to try to talk about my favorite decision or my favorite types of decisions presented in each of these games i think that's something you know as much as we can on the show we have a lot of new listeners right now uh we try to do that we try to bring the focus back to decisions so even though this is a top 10 episode really trying to give you a sense for who we are and what we like we'll try to come at it from that decision perspective which i think is just going to further emphasize who we are and why we like these games oh gee no pressure i told you this in discord (laughs) Do you want to go first or do you want me to? I'll take it away. How about okay, that? Okay, you take it away. All right, my number 10 game of all time is The Isle of Cats. Wow. The Isle of Cats is a drafting and polyomino tile laying game where you are playing as, I guess, the captain of a ship going off to an island to rescue cats from a bad man. <laughs> uh, 
what I love about this game is it really feels like just a sort of glorious mess of mechanisms that don't all fit together perfectly, but do come together in a way that creates a dynamic space for really fun, tactical decisions. So this game has a draft where you're drafting cards that'll be important to the game, and then you'll need to manipulate those cards to create an economy, which you'll use to capture the cats before you can even add them to your boat. We've had a whole episode discussion on that phenomenon, which Brendan dubbed mechanical artifice. And I think that that's really fun. And I think the decisions that I like so much out of that is just trying to parse that mess and figure out any given turn, like, okay, what is the tactical best choice here? So when you compare like the draft in this game, the Isle of Cats, to a game like Blood Rage, I feel like here you don't need to know so much the combination of cards and what to look out for. You just take the cards you're dealt, look at the board state, look at the board, look at what you're trying to achieve, and just make the best choice in that given moment. And I find that a really fun and satisfying decision. I really enjoy the Isle of Cats also. So I'll just chime in and say that I think polyomino games fall into two categories, typically clean polyomino games and messy polyomino games. And the Isle of Cats is a messy polyomino game. You're tiling this non-regular shape. It's sort of this like rectangular diamond ship shape. And all of the pieces are cats strewn in weird ways. And they're larger. They're not just tetronomos or something. So you kind of get to make a mess, but you're trying to make the best mess with pieces possible. And I find it makes it even more rewarding when you can make a an arrangement of cats that fit cleanly onto your boat. So I, I really love the puzzle in that one. Yeah. And I'll just end with, a final point on the Isle of Cats, which is that this is a box that has two game modes in it. The, we were just referring to the advanced game mode. I guess that's like the standard or traditional game, but it also comes with instructions for a family game mode. And I just want to encourage everyone not to sleep on that. It takes what is a pretty complicated game with a bunch of different mechanisms and it distills it down to just simply drafting cats and adding them to your boat. You know, on your turn, just take one, add it to your boat. There are some individual player goals that you're working towards, and that's it. And it's really fun. Don't sleep on it. It makes it a great gateway game that you could teach to anyone. Um, so that extra value in the box is something that bumps it up a little bit for me as well. The Isle nice. of Cats. And if you want to hear Jake's thoughts more on Isle of Cats, check out episode 79 of the show. That's a deep dive of it. But on to my number 10 game. Uh, which my number 10 game of all time is Monolith Arena. Monolith Arena is a tactical tile laying game in which each player has a unique player faction uh, and you're playing tiles, uh, little hexagons to a shared board. Those tiles come in a few different forms. There's uh, units that you have. This is a combat game where you're trying to reduce your opponent's health to zero faster than they can to you or get it lower than the other player before the timer runs out, which is players running out of tiles to add to the board. And essentially, the thing I love most about Monolith Arena is the pacing of the game because each player, the structure of the game is you draw three tiles and you choose uh, to play some of one of those tiles and or two of those tiles and discard one. And you can also opt to keep one. But basically, you get presented with this interesting juxtaposition of options when you're drawing those tiles. And you have to decide what the best way to advance your position on the board might be. 
a lot of the tiles that you might be playing out are units, which have different speeds that they will uh, attack on when they're activated. And so you're kind of taking turns, adding pieces to the board, and tension is rising and rising and rising as all of these pieces come out. And then another type of tile that you might draw from the bag is a tile that allows you to start combat. And if you choose to play that card, you could also choose to discard it, uh, or tile, I should say. It starts, it sort of snaps the rubber band on all the tension that has been building on the board. You resolve everything that's there. You see if you've made any progress towards damaging the other person's banner, uh, which is sort of their central, most important unit that you're building around. I just find it, it offers really compelling, interesting decisions that are different every time because your strategy is so driven by the order that tiles come out and when combats are happening. Uh, monolith arena also has these cool this cool monolith mechanic this is really an implementation monolith arena of a famous game called Nurushima hex but monolith arena adds these cool monoliths which allow you to on certain turns kind of unravel these monoliths across the board uh, and dynamically shake up the board and what's there it supports two to four players but i really think of this as a two-player dueling game that plays in about 25 minutes or less it's just really fun one that didn't get a ton of fanfare but i think uh, I have great fondness for it, and I always love to play it when I get the chance. Awesome. I ha- I'm not really familiar with this game at all. It seems like an interesting little subgenre of games. You mentioned Nurushima Hex. I know War Chest is. Is that sort of a little bit similar with drawing tiles out of the bag? It's interesting. They're playing in a similar space. They're yeah. doing something different, but they are kind of a similar riff on yeah. They're two sides of the same coin, maybe. Yeah. So I mean, I I don't know why. It is, and this is probably just a me thing, but there's something about that where it's like, I just look at it and just go. There's no hand though. You don't have to have a hand of tiles. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Your I hate that. Piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I would love to try this with you sometime and I'm sure that I could easily be won over. So I'm glad that you're bringing up here to people that maybe like me are just overlooking this game for no good reason. Yeah, I'll bring it to Geekway. Okay, perfect. Again, that was Monolith Arena by... What was the designer on that? It is by Michael or Mikal or Kaz. It's published by Portal Games. Okay. Yeah, came out in 2018. Should we do that? Should we be a good journalist? And we we probably should try. Yeah, that might be good. Okay. What about Isle of Cats then? <laughs> Isle of Cats is by Frank West and published yes, yes, yes. by the City of Games. Yeah, Frank West Company. Excellent. Okay, my number nine game of all time, also new to the list, is Barrage. I said on our episode on Barrage that Barrage is my favorite heavy game of all time. And it is on this list and occupying that spot is just like this sort of heavy, crunchy Euro game that I can dive into and explore over and over again. And Barrage is published by capstone games by no. cranio creations <laughs> <laughs> it kind of feels Does, like it could have been capstone yeah, yeah i don't know why i thought that designed by tomaso batista and simone luciani so in barrage uh you are playing as a country and an executive and you are trying to manipulate water cascading down a mountain range i guess by getting in the way of that water with your own dams and power plants. So you can convert the water falling down into energy, which is going to give you points. And it's also going to uh, give you the ability to score objectives and 
purchase additional power plants and other types of infrastructure and has this really excellent dynamic tension in the decision space of working towards producing as much energy as you can and working towards doing a really good job with creating infrastructure. And both of those are sort of avenues to big points and big payoffs. A lot of the game comes down to, you know, zigging while other people are zagging, taking the most advantage of your unique player powers to identify a route to victory. I don't, I'm trying to think what my absolute favorite decision that comes up in barrage is. And I think it might be sort of crafting your gameplay to create like these moments of significant impact. Yeah. Whether that means you're, you know, saving up to put down a power plant in the perfect spot, blocking off your opponents. It's just a really fun and rewarding gameplay loop that I can keep going back to again and again. Long-term planning is really fun in games and rewarding, right? Like the as a human being, having a goal and then achieving it feels good, whether it's in a game or in real life. But I think for me, the fa- my favorite thing about Barrage, I'm so glad you said that, Jake, is you have long-term planning, but because the infrastructure building puzzle is so interactive and the worker placement puzzle that's ruling the actions that you can take is so interactive it's sort of you get the this really rewarding long-term planning mixed with like other players throwing hiccups at you that if you can overcome them and navigate that puzzle to come out on top it feels even more rewarding in a way like the interactivity amplifies what's there so the decisions when you sort of say like make an interesting off-paced decision on the worker placement puzzle and it ends up being the right decision at the right time. It just can really feel like a home run. Barrage is yeah. awesome. And I, the last thing I'll say, the most pleasant surprise about exploring this game for me was that Barrage has a reputation of being like a really cutthroat and brutal game, yeah. right? Where you can put your power plant dam, your dam rather, blocking somebody else and now all their plans are shot. I drink your milkshake. Exactly. And that is true, but it isn't true to the extent that you don't always get to have fun as you're playing. You may end up getting screwed out of winning the game and and score much fewer points than somebody else, but but you're still able to play the game the whole way through. It's not like if you make a mistake, you're like eliminated from having fun in a way that I was expecting would be the case. So it doesn't really have the negative player experiences, even when losing this game that I had expected it to have. And the feedback is really good too. Like if you make a mistake in Barrage, it's you're usually learning when you're playing yeah. Barrage in, a, in so, a great way. Yeah. And so for all those reasons, Barrage is a heavy interactive Euro game that I would highly recommend people check out and maybe even push themselves into a heavier space than they're used to, to give a try. And if you want a fuller deep dive on Barrage, check out episode 109, which was a complete deep dive of Barrage on our show. Uh, My number nine game, Jake, is The Resistance by Don Eskridge and Indie Boards and Cards. Uh, I feel as if The Resistance needs very little introduction. You've already mentioned on the show, it's a beloved game. that is over 10 years old now, but it's a social deduction game in which there are two sides with hidden roles. One group is a group of resistance fighters who are 
very clearly on the good side in this game, uh, trying to go on a set of missions where they are trying to bring with them other resistance uh, members so they can succeed those missions and win the game. And hidden amongst the group of players are a number of spies who are trying to deceive the resistance players, make them think they're members of the resistance themselves so they can secretly go on those missions and make them fail. The Resistance was a game that was on in my honorable mentions the last time we did a top 10. It's a game I love, and it's really one of the first three or four games that I started playing when I really got into playing board games as an adult. And I'll say that, you know, the Resistance has kind of ebbed and flowed in how much there's been room in it in my life, but I've just had some recent plays of it that have been phenomenal. And it's reminded me of the, the height of how memorable the experience can be, how much it generates emotional investment and conversation. And I think also, Jake, I've realized the more I've played it, for it sort of nails the decisions in a social deduction game in an interesting way. And there's lots of different interesting decisions. But for me, I love that the resistance, you know, growing up playing Mafia and Werewolf, so much of playing those games i feel like it's it's about not trusting people like it's it's when do i betray and the resistance has that like i love when i'm a spy and i get to make the hard decision of am i going to betray another spy to try to win us the game that's a that's a great decision and it's memorable when that happens and it works and sometimes it doesn't but i also i love that the way that the resistance is structured where there's always more people that are on the resistance than who are evil and good is sort of the resistance side is sort of the default means that it's really a game about trust. And can I make the decision to trust you? Uh, And I love that. That's a fun thing to explore with friends and even uh, with people you don't know as well. I've played this game recently with some non-native English speakers who we just had a blast. It was like one of the best games of resistance I've ever played. Um, So yeah, the resistance, a classic for the ages. And my yeah. number nine game of all time. Absolutely agree with everything you said. It's a game I love. Maybe we shouldn't go too in depth because I know we're planning an episode on resistance and all things social deduction in the relatively near future. But just like you in preparing for that, I've I've had some recent games of resistance after not playing it for a while. And there have been just some incredible highs in those yeah. games. But also I had an experience more recently, not such a high uh you know not not that it was like a disaster and people had like bad feelings but it's it's not something that's going to resonate with everybody right yeah. like some people just don't like yelling and the resistance can very quickly become a game that's just like who's the loudest in the room right and somebody's just like kind of like shouting over people and and that's not something that everybody's always going to enjoy yeah but with that caveat in mind like if if you were to ask me what is like the most emotionally evocative game that you've ever played it's the resistance hand down hands down awesome jake what's your number eight game of all time wait wait, brendan yeah what's wrong we have to do our job okay the resistance who published it who no i said it, it at the start don oh, askridge indy bordism oh uh, let's go dude. i led with it perfect wow look at us <laughs> my number eight game of all time is broom service Previously, my number six game of all time, uh, Broom Service, is published by Ravensburg. Yeah. And designed by Alexander Pfister. Nice. So Broom Service is this adorably sweet pickup and deliver game, sort of thematically similar to uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, if you're familiar with the Miyazaki film, where players will control two witches 
they will pick up potions and they'll spread out across the board delivering potions to towers but beneath that very adorable uh exterior is just an absolutely dynamic cutthroat game of if something that like approximates poker right with bluffing Mm. and poker faces and all of that comes down to this system of sort of leading and following actions in combination with almost a push your luck element of playing those actions either bravely or cowardly if you play an action bravely which is just really hilarious to say and really adds a lot to the game for me to say like i am the brave weather fairy you don't Which get the, the game pro- instructs you to do. Yeah. Oh, if you're playing at my table, you absolutely have to do that. Yeah. If you say I am the brave weather fairy, you don't get to take that weather fairy action that you would get to do if you said I am the cowardly weather fairy until it goes all the way around the table and every player has had the opportunity to reveal whether or not they're holding a weather fairy card and whether or not they want to play bravely or cowardly. And if somebody else picks bravely, then that cancels out your entire action. So it just creates this, it adds this really, really dynamic, I already know I already said dynamic, element of watching what every other player is doing, what position they are on the board uh, that makes this game, you know, really interactive, really fun, and always, you know, has these moments where people are on the edge of their seat waiting for it to get to that last person for them to, you know, reveal whether or not they're indeed holding that card. Yeah, it's just fantastic fun. I mean, to me, this is like the quintessential board game experience that I'm looking for around the table. It's not too hard rules-wise. Packs just a ton in terms of like strategic depth, uh, ability to be creative. And my only, only knock against it is that it does feel like a game where sometimes if you get down early, that forces you to take bigger risks and bigger risks are likely not going to pay off. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it it does feel like the type of game where you'll have often three players all sort of neck and neck for the lead and one person with like a third as many points. And being that player is not the most fun. That can definitely be a negative player experience. But that's really the only knock against Broom Service. Amazing game. You got to check it out. My number eight of all time. And we might hear about Broom Service again, but if you'd like to hear about Broom Service more in depth too, you check out episode 57 of our show. My number eight game of all time is Cascadia, a tile drafting, tile laying, habitat creation game by Randy Flynn, published by Flatout Games and AEG. Cascadia is just a wonderful game about drafting these habitat tiles that you have to fit together, which all didn't show one of f- uh, one of five different animals that can exist in it. You might have grizzly bears and salmon and hawks and elk uh, that you're fitting into these territories. So you're playing this interesting hexagonal sort of tile lane game where you're trying to create these larger regions on your board that are all connected, but overlaid across this entire puzzle. You're trying to play really this sort of set collection game on top of it where you're trying to get different types of animals into those habitats in the right arrangement of them. I find that Cascadia is one of the most relaxing games I've ever played. Uh, It's 
It's a game I've played over a hundred times. It's one of the games in my collection where I've just played through the rule book, or excuse me, not the rule book, the score sheet uh, with my wife, Maya. And we still have a lot of fun with Cascadia. I think that when I was trying to think, Jake, about the most interesting decisions Cascadia offers, uh, for me, the, the reason why this game jumps out isn't because there's any one decision point that really stands out. There's some interesting decisions with the the pinecone tokens that you use in the game. But really for me, you know, some games... The decision space just there's pivotal turns where the part the appeal of those the decisions in those games are the game builds to these climactic moments and then you get to make a decision and see how it pays off dramatically in one direction or the other. Cascadia is not really that. For me, the fun of it is it's about the cum- cumulative effects of many good decisions that in their total either win you the game or make you come up short. And I think that that's really fun when paired with a sort of relaxing game that you can just say, let's just play again. Let's just play again. Let's just play again. There's been a lot of times that Maya and I have played this two or three uh, times in a row, sometimes even maybe more than that in an afternoon uh, when we were really in the throes of our love of this game. I will say I like it most at two. I think that it's a, it's a fairly solitaire puzzle uh, and adding more players doesn't make it all that much more interesting. Uh, and in some ways, I think it when you play it at two, you have even more of an ability to affect what your opponent might take because it's a zero-sum draft. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. So Cascadia is my number eight game of all time. I think what you said there about it being a sort of relaxing game and having these just incremental decisions is truly the hallmark of the decision space that game for me. I think it's also the reason that I'm not as enthusiastic about it than you. I don't think you're going to find a game on my list that you would put into the category of relaxing games. Sure. Right. Which is just a player preference thing. So, you know, I think when we reviewed Cascadia, I really had a hard time criticizing anything about it, but it just didn't have, it didn't just get me excited, right? It didn't get me going like the way some other games do. So I, you know, I think that's where that, point is exactly where we differ on it yeah it's a game of inches also i'll say there's you know the top scores that you're going to get there's not like you're going to have a breakout game where you can be super super high and once you're good at it you're not going to have a game where you're super super low and i think you tend to jake prefer games where the variety of outcomes is a bit broader where you can have a really, really outlier, strong play of a game that's really exciting and can also, you know, be thrown wrenches by a game that sort of say, wow, that was a tough one. And Cascadia yeah. is kind of like you're going down the river. It's the same river every time. And as long as you enjoy the ride, it's great. Okay, well, let's move right along to my number seven game of all time. It is Renature by Kramer and Kiesling and published by Capstone Games. Renature, another game that we have covered on this podcast a surprise hit for me i would say just because when you look at the box of this game you don't really know what it is it it, i guess it didn't really grab me at all it says okay we've got some dominoes but instead of numbers there's animals you're placing them around the board and doing some kind of like region majority territory majority scoring thing Uh, You got some superpowers that you can just activate, but very limited time throughout the game uh, that gives it these like tremendously swingy, spiky turns where you're like, I'm betting it all here, which I like. But I just fell in love with this game. It's one that I've showed off to a bunch of different players in different types of settings and found that it works really well. I mean, I wouldn't play this with brand, brand new 
gamers, perhaps, just because there's a little bit of complexity that can be a little bit hard to parse with the scoring and with the neutral faction color. But like, what is Renature? I, I, I don't even know. Basically, you're, you're planting different sized shrubs to trees and you're, and you're scoring points for it. But the fun is navigating this decision space puzzle of having a very, very restrict, restrictive setting where what you're going to be able to do on your turn is going to be dependent upon the dominoes you have in your hand and the dominoes on the board and finding the best way to maximize those restrictions on each turns and finding the exact right moment where you can expend your precious precious flower resources to break the rules in a way that allows you to do something that you otherwise wouldn't be able to to me that is the hallmark of a game that i just can see myself playing for the rest of my days (laughs) Yeah, the dominoes are awesome. They depict animals on them. And whenever you are taking a turn, you can only play such that you're playing your dominoes where it matches another animal of the same type, right? So if it depicts frog, you can only place that where it touches another frog, just like classic dominoes. I think, Jake, the way I would describe your nature is it's like, a you know, those genre mashup songs where it's like, this is a rock song and this is a country song. And now we're going to mash them up together. Renature is kind of like that, except it's, this is a domino tiling game mixed with area control. And then we're going to arm the players with knives where you can completely attack each other and cut each other down and just create these sweeping turns where I'm going to gain 15 points or something, like 10% of my points in this game. And it's going to come at the expense of not just Jake, but Jake and Bridget, who, because I've made, they were previously leading in this area. I've made them tie and ties in this game are such that if you tie, it's like your pieces aren't even there. I was in third. Now I'm in first. It just makes, it's so great. There's lots of highs and lows and really interesting decisions. And it's a game like no other. There's not any other game where your agency and your actions are driven in an area control game by laying dominoes onto a board. It's really fun. It scratches so many itches. It is a relaxing theme, but it is anything but in practice. So that's Renature. Brendan, what is your number seven game? My number seven game is also a very interactive, potentially sometimes feel bad game. It is Keyflower. Keyflower was previously number five on my list, uh, and it's dropped down just a little bit, but still steadfastly here in my top 10. Because I think Keyflower is one of my longest loved and most enjoyed games. And I think it's also one of the best worker placement games I've ever played. It's one of the best Euro games I've ever played. And it's one of the best auction games I've ever played. Keyflower is designed by Sebastian Blesdale and Richard Breeze. It was first published in 2012. And every player is in Keyflower trying to build a village of tiles in front of them over the course of four seasons that are tied to the four rounds played in the game. You are bidding on these shared tiles that come out each round with meeples in three colors, uh, potentially four, but we'll not get into that little twist. And whenever you bid for a tile, you're going to pick any single color of meeples and use those to bid. So for example, let's say I wanted a nice tile uh, that had come out that would give me six points. I could bid two yellow meeples to claim that tile. And if Jake wanted to get that, he'd have to bid three yellow meeples. He couldn't use blue or red. So that's going on each round we're bidding for tiles, but we might also be using those same workers 
that we would use to bid for tiles to activate tiles because all of the tiles that you're bidding on for the most part are also worker placement locations that allow you to get resources uh, to play this interesting logistics puzzle. There's a lot going on this game, so it's difficult to summarize it all. But you're having to make these tough decisions between advancing your prospects, getting access to better tiles versus using the tiles you already have or using the tiles your opponents have because you can use tiles that other players have in their villages at the expense of you lose the workers that you use to activate them. They go to that other player. I find the decisions that Keyflower offers are unlike most in any game. You're always offered... It's a game about options. You have the option to play on any tile that's come out in the board. So it's so much around not just what's the best path for this game, but what are my opponents trying to accomplish and what sequence should I be using to try to accomplish this? Do I need to bid on this tile now? Do I need to lock down a use of this really key uh, resource logistics tile at this point in time? So I, I have to understand other players' intentions, what would be best for them, and factor that into my decisions. I find Keyflower to be a very engaging puzzle that brings people arching in rather than arching out on their turns as they're trying to figure out how to navigate this. And I find it doesn't overstay its welcome, and the more I play it, the more I love it. And that's why Keyflower is my number seven game of all time. And I don't like it at all so (laughs) (laughs) you know and if you want to know more about that check out episode 26 in which it's titled key love it or key hate it (laughs) yeah yeah so let's leave that there but yeah for me it's not for me let's move right on to my number six game of all time and it is my city by one dr reiner knizia let's do a little rhino oh yeah We haven't done that in a while. Raising the roof, but no one can see it. That's great. (laughs) And we don't have the music playing at all. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so published by Cosmos Game, My City. We just recently did a double episode feature on this. I like the legacy game i played it once with you i played it half with my wife and and we're finishing up our second campaign playing together playing on board game arena while she's away and so i like the legacy game i love the eternal game yeah which is the way you can play this without the legacy components and, and just play it forever as sort of the best of the best elements of this game and the thing that stands out to me most about my city i guess i should say this is essentially a flip and write game it's a flip and place game where you have a deck of cards each card has a specific polyomino tile polyomino tiles coming up again for me and you flip up a card find that tile place it on your board and you're trying to fill up your city board to score points in a variety of ways very simple and the thing that really just sticks in my mind about this game is the fact that i've been playing this game essentially constantly on board game arena for like the past three months and every time i have a i've been playing asynchronously while my wife is in peru uh, and every time still that i have a notification on board game arena it's like my city it's fun i'm just like excited to see what i get excited to see what the next tile is going to come out and and where to place it i feel like 
as simple as this game is, it can definitely be a game that is incredibly rewarding and also punishing, right? When you make a mistake and the mistakes that you do make more and more, I feel as though I could have done better. I should have seen that coming and set my board up in a way so that I wouldn't be punished so hard by that tile getting revealed just now. Uh, Pretty simple. Maybe you could say this is relaxing, but the dynamic feel of starting out very open and loose and you know ev- the whole world is in front of you to the way the decision space wanes down at the very end to where you have only a few tiles left and, and very few options and did you give yourself the space and ability to take advantage of them and oh my god please not that tile now and now i'm out of the round it's it's great it's delightful my yeah. city my city is a phenomenal game my number six game of all time is Battlecon. Uh, Battlecon is a series of games. Really, the one that I, the box I own and enjoy immensely, is Devastation of Indines, which came out in 2013, published by Level 99 Games, and it's designed by D. Brad Talton Jr. Battlecon is a fighting game in which it pits two players head to head in a, essentially what simulates like a classic video game style two dimensional struggle over positioning and uh, trying to outthink your opponent. Uh, each player has a set of cards and one set is shared between the two players. These are sort of bases that represent normal actions that you might be able to do and each player can do. So it might be like strike or dodge or roll or shot, which is a ranged attack. So both players have this sort of base of things they can do. And then each player plays a unique character that adds unique styles that augment what those bases can do. And they can be mixed and matched. Uh, So I might see a combo, a pairing of those two cards that's really good, and know that when I'm playing Jake, who's playing a specific character he gravitates towards a specific pairing of those cards and with those assumptions i'm going to change the decisions that i'm making uh to try to preempt the moves he'll make and what i love most about battlecon is that is that it lives in this sort of double think where i have to know what jake is going to do to know what it would be best for me to do and jake has to know that i know that he knows that and then all of a sudden we're in donkey space and everything's this ball of slurry beautiful decisions where we're just trying to see what we can read from each other's faces and our past actions and see if we can condition certain actions to take advantage of in the future. Battlecon's quick. It's a very fast game, so you can play it iteratively, which I think is another thing that I love. Um, But for me, my favorite thing about the decisions are the simultaneous choices of your cards, revealing them and getting that feedback. It's just so fun and immersive. And every game, uh, to me, feels like infinitely interesting because every decision is valid. It's just if you're making the right decision at the right time versus the player that you're playing. Yeah. Battlecom is con is such an excellent system. I think of all the games we've talked about, this one requires the most dedicated play. It's almost as the, the first time you play it with somebody else who's brand new, you're probably not going to get very much out of it because you're just going to be picking random cards, slamming into each other and, and seeing what happens. But it can really elevate so much as the skill of the players increases which is exciting and also an inherent con where it's a difficult game to show to people unless you're going to like dedicate a night maybe to playing it because you're going to play it once and then go all right and it's even as a more experienced player if you're playing with somebody who's just doing random things that's not as fun either so it, it takes some dedicated concerted effort to get over that 
But once you do, an incredible game. Yeah. And if you're intrigued, episode 97, check it out. All right. My number five game of all time, top five, is Grand Austria Hotel, designed by Virginio Gigli and Simone Luciani. My second Luciani game on my list. Who knew that was going to happen? Not me. And this, this one is published by Lookout Games or Lookout Spiel. Grand Austria Hotel is a dice manipulation, uh, I guess like a, a dice action selection game, an action selection game where your actions are dictated by the role of a dice, I guess might be the way I would put it. Yeah. Uh, in it, you are trying to collect cards of guests. Uh, you're trying to open up hotel rooms and then feed and give drink to your guest so that basically completing the recipe on each of the guest cards so that you can slot them into the into a room while trying to do that you're also paying attention to shared player goals you're trying to be the first to achieve three different goals and that that makes the game feel very interactive because those are extremely important so those races as well as the fact that people are going to be taking dice away from you uh, and the game also has a snake draft element where if you're going first, then the next person after you and the person after them are all going to be taking two dice each before it gets back to you and trying to think ahead to what might be available, what might be left uh, is all just a really fascinating puzzle that hits the exact sweet spot for me in the type of decision space that I really love, which is that it feels like a waning a dynamic waning decision space so that's something that will come up again for me where you have the pool of dice that's going down but then at the next round you're going to roll all the dice again and you'll have a lot more option and then it will wane down once again and i just find that whenever it appears so delightful and this is one of the absolute best iterations of that so the first of a few coming up uh grand austria hotel in that category yeah. Grand Austria Hotel really rewards repeat plays and mastery too in a way that I think is, if you get into it, it ends up being so rewarding to play. Yeah. And talk about a game where you could score 30 or 200. Yep. Mostly I scored 30. My number five game of all time is Reiner Knizia's Tigris and Euphrates. Tigris and Euphrates is a classic tile laying game that is conflict driven. It's all about trying to get these leader tiles that each player has in a unique shape onto the board and then to place tiles of four different colors uh, alongside them to set up little civilizations that grow and shift over the course of play. Uh, by placing tiles, you're going to get points. And at the end of the game, players' total point value is equal to the color of tile, like points they have the least of, right? So when I place a green tile next to my leader that's green, I'll get one green point. So it doesn't matter if I have 20 blue points, but only three red points, my score for the game is three. So it's all about trying to equally pursue points in these four different colors tied to these tiles. And you're doing this alongside other players. You have shared incentives because these groupings of tiles might have leaders from multiple players. Uh, you can also take big risks. And if you build a square of four of the same color tile next to each other, they get flipped over and they turn into monuments, which are going to gush points onto the table every turn in two different colors. But it weakens the overall strength of that collection of tiles, that little civilization, and makes you more vulnerable to wars, which is a way that you can place tiles connecting two different 
collections of tiles, those little civilizations, and potentially snap up a bunch of tiles all at once and score points. Uh, Tigris and Euphrates is not for everyone, but it's a brilliant game that rewards future planning. And my favorite thing is the decision around when to take a big risk and start a war that you think will be advantageous for you and push you ahead. It leads to exciting moments where there's no certainty, uh, but typically an exciting outcome. Every time I play it, I feel like I'm learning and getting better. And I'm over 100 plays in and excited to keep playing and exploring and love and playing it on Board Game Arena every single day. Awesome. Uh, it won't be one that is appearing on my list. I do find it to be the absolute most triggering game that I've ever played whenever I'm playing it and something bad happens to me. For whatever reason, there's something about Tigers and Euphrates. It just makes me rage so hard. Something about the hand of tiles is is factoring into it in a significant way. I don't really know what it is. So, you know, not for everyone, but even I can appreciate the brilliance of the design even if it's not one that i enjoy interacting with as much as you i think it's awesome how many games are on my list that it's like jake's like i cannot play this game anymore <laughs> yeah, i hate this that's, game i think we're at two yeah that's great <laughs> moving on number four for me we're moving over from austria to nearby belgium for bruges uh designed by Steffenfeld and published by hans m gluck and or Z-Man. US, it was Z-Man, yeah. Okay, so Bruges previous is actually a game that was on this list before. The second <laughs> game on my list that's reappearing. And it was previously my number one game, so falling three spots down to number four. Bruges is a classic Steffenfeld game where, similarly to Grand Austria Hotel, you will roll a shared set of colored dies uh, that won't be used up by the players, but will dictate the value of different cards and your ability to use different cards in your hands to accomplish actions. This is a point salad game where you'll score points uh, by, you know, achieving various different things in the city. You'll get points by paying the cost for people to go into houses, uh, by building up canal routes, and by advancing, spending money to advance your reputation. All of those things have sort of a really interesting majority goal where if you have the single most in any of those categories, you get a four point bonus. Uh, But then if somebody else overtakes you later, you get to keep the bonus, but then they'll get to also have their four point bonus unlocked. So that's a really interesting dynamic. And I think what I love most about this game is, again, it just has this super sweet spot for me of a waning dynamic decision space where each round you'll draw five cards and then you'll play out four of those cards, barring anything funky happening. And it's really fun for me to see what cards I get and then plan out that mini strategy for how I you know, want to use those cards over the course of that round. That may change depending on what my opponents do. But for me, that's sort of the perfect amount of, you know, strategy within the strategy. You have like all this like tactical decision of like, how am I going to achieve my strategy within this given round? And for me, that's the sweet spot uh, game I absolutely love. The only reason it's fallen is because I I had a really consistent group of playing this game. Uh, But unfortunately, we have ceased after maybe like 30 games on repeat or something. So I haven't been playing it as much, um, but I do know. Tyler, Sassy Rabbit, our Discord recently picked up a copy of this. And 
So now I'll have the opportunity, hopefully, to play it in person. And I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, also, should say, re-implemented as Hamburg. So similar game, not exactly the same. Haven't played that one yet. But that's Bruges, my number four game. Previously, number one. And I want to highlight the trend that Jake really likes games with input randomness. And output awesome decisions. Yeah. Right? The dice at the start. There you go. Boom. Okay. I'm going to speed through because I know we got to, we got to get to this. We each have our top three left, but my number four game of all time, previously my number two is El Grande, a 1995 Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich game that is one of the best area control games ever made. It is my favorite area control game to play. Uh, and it's all about using this hand of cards that you start with completely at this, uh, 13 cards that are going to determine when you get to pick actions within the round and then trying to fill up this board with meeples. My favorite decisions in this game are the simultaneous choice decisions that come around this nice component, this hidden disc where you can select a region on the board and then reveal all at once and all this change happens and it's just awesome and interesting. It's rewarding, it's fun, and it's never the same. El Grande, my number four game of all time. Finally, one I can wholeheartedly agree with you on. I love El Grande for me. It's a 10 out of 10 design. Uh, It didn't make my top 10 list, but it was very close. I just checked and it looked like it came in at number 15 this time around. Um, But I just had a play of this on the table that ended up with three players within two points of each other. It was just a total blast. Great game. We got to get this another edition out there, right? Somebody needs to pick this up because I would love to have a copy in my collection. All right, Brendan, are we ready for our top three games of all time? Heck yeah, let's do it. All right. What's your top three? My top three, so my number three, going back to Dr. Reiner Kinesia with Raw, published most recently by 25th Century Games. Raw is an absolutely wonderful family weight auction game that also is a game that can be enjoyed with even the most experienced players, most serious board gamers. Just an absolute delight. I played Raw for the first time last year at uh, the Gamers Ranch in Missouri, which was a very fun experience to do that. And it was sort of my game of that weekend. So I was really eager to get in on the 25th Century Games Kickstarter, which is not something that I normally do, but I definitely want to have this game. And recently that's been fulfilled. And I've just got to this game to the table like four or five times in the past few weeks, which is something that I never do. You know, this is almost like a one of one experience for me of just like getting a game and having opportunities to play it over and over. And I think a big part of that is because my game group wants to play it. I played it with my mom and my sister. I played it with a few friends who are kind of like right in between, right? people who enjoy board games uh, but aren't full-on like enthusiasts that have you know an entire bookshelf full of them and it's just been a smash hit with everybody that i've played it with so raw is an auction game the way it works is on your turn you'll either take a tile out of the bag to add to the auction pool or you'll start an auction for what is in that pool the bidding is dead simple you can only bid a single number and it only goes around once and whoever has bid the most takes it. Uh, so it keeps it at like a really tight time span to play. This game is never going to go 
too long because of that. There's just not that much that you have to think about on any given turn. And yet it is absolutely full, full chock full of really exciting dynamic moments of somebody triggers an oxen that they don't want to, or something comes up that there, there are both good and bad tiles that can come out. So all the, you know, this oxen is perfect for you and you're just going to fill it, fill up and you're going to use your 13, the highest number in the game to achieve it. And then, you get a calamity tile that actually makes it something that never mind. I don't want this at all. Uh, and then at the end of each round, there's this push your luck element where the person who's last with money left to bid can, you know, pull tiles out of the bag uncontested. But eventually if enough raw tiles come out of the bag, then the round will end without the ability to purchase anything at all. Uh, so that is a wonderful, fun, dynamic moment. And I'm just having a complete blast with this. Maybe it's part of this is a little bit of the hotness because it's so fresh and so new right now for me. But I have it as my number three game of all time at this very moment. And again, that's Raw by Reiner Knizia. Raw's one I haven't played, Jake, but I'm sure I cannot wait for the opportunity to play it because I'm sure I will love it. Uh, my number three game of all time is Cosmic Encounter. This was previously my number one game of all time. Cosmic is an asymmetric player power game in which each player is given a unique alien power that will dramatically break and reshape the rules of the game. I love Cosmic. I've had incredible experiences playing this polarizing game uh, just time and time again. It takes the right group and the right headspace, uh, but I think it in that situation provides such interesting decisions around when to reveal your unique power and decisions around what type of victory to go for because victories in this game can be shared. You could have a game that ends with four players winning and one player losing. You could have a solo victory. And I find reading the table, trying to parse where I'm at, where other players are at and get into everyone's head and how I can best navigate the table and in pursuit of that victory of securing five foreign colonies is is just fantastic. It's not a game I want to play all, all the time, but it's a game that when I want to play it and it hits, it just produces some of my favorite gaming experiences. So that's Cosmic Encounter, my number three game of all time. Brendan, you're on such a roll where I could say, you know, a one game roll of picking a game that I don't hate and you blew it on that one. So... <laughs> I, well, we were close. <laughs> yeah, on my pub meeple just for fun, I ranked like all the games that I had owned or previously owned, uh, and it came up to 164 games, and Cosmic Encounter came in for me at a cool 147. So we're just a little bit of a gap there on, on our appreciation for this, you know, beloved classic game. This is why we make such good co-hosts. Beloved by some. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, my number two game of all time actually stayed in the exact same spot on my list. It was my number two game when we did this two years ago, and that is The Castles of Burgundy, published by Aaliyah and Ravensburg, and designed, of course, by Stefan Feld. Stefan Feld, my favorite designer, and this is just an absolute classic perfect 10 out of 10 game uh, that he has given to the world and i'm very grateful for it um if you don't know about the castles of burgundy it has a very similar decision space you might notice to a game like grand austria hotel or bruges where you will roll dice at the start of your turn and i guess each round you should say the board a shared board is populated with tiles 
uh, on each any given turn in the round, you'll roll dice and use those to take the tiles from the board and try to add them to your personal estate to score points. Then once everybody's had five turns, the board will be wiped clean and repopulated with tiles. So we get to have all the fun of that waning decision space again as we strategically try to advance our long-term strategy with smart tactical decisions. Basically, exactly what I said about Bruges, exactly what I said about Grand Austrian Hotel, except for the Castles of Burgundy, is, as of now, my favorite iteration of this type of decision space. The reason it's my number, it's my most played game of all time. I've played it well over 100 times at this point. The only reason it's not my number one game of all time is because I think I like playing it more online at this point than I do on the table. There's just a little bit too much setup maybe when I know that I can just have zero setup playing online. And I have found that some of my more recent plays on the table have tended to drag just a little bit more than I would want. So I'd still gladly play this with anybody anytime online or on the table. But if we are playing on the table, I just want people to play really quickly. Nice. (laughs) So that's the Castle of Burgundy, my number two game, the second best game of all time. Yeah. My number two game, second best game of all time, is Broom Service by Alexander Pfister and Andreas Pelican, previously on Jake's list. Broom Service is just phenomenal. And I actually felt compelled to play Broom Service based on Jake's last top 10 in episode 33. And in that time, I have sought out a copy of my own, played it countless times. I think I'm close to like 40 or 50 plays of Broom Service probably at this point. Wow, that's Uh, awesome. I love Broom Service. I think that it's amazing at two. It scales wonderfully to higher player counts where it gets increasingly chaotic and zany. At two players, it's increasingly cerebral where you're trying to predict your opponent's plans and it, it, it hits at both ends of the spectrum for me. My favorite thing about the decisions is the simultaneous choice of deciding what cards you're going to play in a given round and trying to build out your strategy to be as flexible as possible. And then, as Jake said, just deciding when to take a big risk, take a brave action, and eke out a little bit more efficiency. For me, Broom Service captures everything I love about some of the... about sort of simultaneous choice games in general, like fighting games or or looser, more... I don't know, more more free-flowing games and also optimization euros and mashes them together like peanut butter and jelly into this wonderful, dynamic, fun experience that doesn't outstay its welcome. Broom Service is my number two game of all time. And you already heard my thoughts on that, so no need to add more, but it's a 10 out of 10 game for me and I absolutely love it, obviously. Uh, so we are to my number one game of all time and it is the first appearance of Uwe Rosenberg on my list. And the game, of course, is A Feast for Odin. Previously, my number three game, it has now made the jump to number one. I think that jump is fueled in large part by the fact that uh, since the last iteration of this list, A Feast for Odin was added to Board Game Arena, just making it much easier to play. So all of a sudden, a game that was really a you know a once a year type of game just because it's so big and difficult to get to the table for me now is a game that I can have at my fingertips whenever I want it. So A Feast for Odin is really the perfect game for me because it combines a lot of what you've seen 
on the list from me. It's a great Euro game with some elements of interaction. Uh, it has polyomino tiles that you can place to fill out your personal board and islands you may collect throughout the game. And it also has, not, not to the same extent as some of the other ones, but it does have this sort of dynamic waning decision space where you start out each round with a bunch of workers. Uh, and then on each round, you'll play your works to the board until you have none left. And then you'll get all the workers back and you get to have that exact same fun experience of making tactical, tactical decisions to achieve your overall strategies. Something obviously that i'm quite fond of i think the thing that puts this game over the top for me is just the epic scope of the strategies in this game it feels like each strategic path you could go down is infinitely adjustable and craftable uh, to really make it your own and you'll never play the same game twice in in a way that i feel like isn't always true of the castles of burgundy and also it has uh, an expansion the norwegians which takes you know what is maybe a 9 out of 10 game and just makes it 10 out of 10 by fixing some of the balance issues that we mentioned on our last episode uh, into a game that really feels like everything is just open for you to explore and have fun with, and you won't be at a disadvantage no matter which way you choose. So it's just a great Euro sandbox, epic experience, waning, decision space, dynamic decision space, polyamo tiles that's me in a box sometimes it's fun jake to get into a game where you're you know the decisions are navigating this harsh maze where you have very little room to maneuver and the fun is making it to the end despite being so constricted a feast for odin is the exact opposite of that decision space you're you've workers gushing at you they're giving you resources every turn and you have you know 80 plus action spaces to decide from and and the freedom of what you can choose is so rewarding and fun and makes exploring it really rewarding i also love a feast for odin it's a great game and offers really fun rewarding decisions my number one game of all time right now is reiner Knizia's babylonia babylonia is a tile laying game in which you're trying to play tiles of different types to a shared board to claim access to farms, ziggurats, and cities, the three primary scoring routes in the game. Uh, and you're doing this maneuvering this shared space at the same time as your opponents. You're trying to create chains of tiles where all of your tiles are nicely interconnected, but you're forced by the game at times just based on points and what you can get to spread out and to, to go for the, the best opportunities on the board at a given time. My favorite thing about Babylonia is how much game it packs in to the time it takes to play. This a 30 minute or less game for players who've played it a fair amount. Uh, it can span to be, you know, it's like a 30 to 60 minute game, but it feels like a full deep experience with lots of strategic considerations, interesting tactical trade-offs. And I think my favorite thing about the decisions in this game are that to some extent you you know there's lots of interesting planning of how you're going to try to make your tiles connect but you're speculating on what your opponents are going to do at these important inflection points and trying to make a decision based on that speculation if you should do x or y there's also just bombastic turns that are really rewarding and you'll have turns where you score these crushes of points that are just fun it's just a fun game uh it's driven by a, a random hand of tiles that's that means that no two games play alike. And the board is also variably set up uh, with the cities and farm tiles. So every board you play on feels different. And it also scales. 
so the two player board is much smaller than the board if you play at four, which means that it's the perfect size. You're always in the right size uh, play space. So you're rubbing up against each other. Something that Tigris and Euphrates, uh, the other tiling game from Reiner Canizia on my list does not do. And I think that Babylonia learned from Tigris and Euphrates and, and really made a game that shines at all player counts. So Babylonia is my number one game of all time and a game that we recently covered on the show. Well, not Jake and I, but Maya, my wife and I recently covered on the show in a deep dive. So check that out. Yeah, I think, Brendan, that's a great pick for you. Obviously, I haven't played it yet, but it seems like I may get that opportunity in three short weeks, uh, and I can't wait to play it, and I can't wait to come back to this podcast and share my thoughts on that, good or bad. Yeah, likewise. You've talked, you've talked it up enough, you know, so it better be freaking great. No, okay? I'm so nervous. Don't have your expectations <laughs> too high, but you, I think you'll really enjoy it. My that's expectations good. are not that high, so yeah. <laughs> don't worry about that. Just because of my experience playing tigers and euphrates right yeah either way we'll see what happens and i'm excited absolutely to try it out so that's it that is our top 10 games of all time brendan final closing thoughts here in the last moments of the show no i just want to thank you uh listener for listening to our top 10 i I encourage you if any of these games intrigued you to go back and look for an episode on them you can find uh, a full list of episodes in our game index on our website at decisionspacepodcast.com for the episode entry for this show you'll also find our top 50s and patrons i want to hear your thoughts on jake's special short sentence that we'll publish to our patreon on each of the games in his top 50 uh maybe i'll do that as well and for all of our pre-planners who play games along with us know that coming up we'll do a deep dive of Architects of the West Kingdom, a Shem Phillips game uh, that's a worker placement game. And we're also going to plan to cover spots on the show and can't stop and claim it at some point soon too. All of these games are available to play online, either on Board Game Arena or yukata.de. So check them out. Play along with us so you're prepared for the show. Yeah, if you're playing these games, come into the Discord. Let us know your thoughts because... That absolutely helps us shape the show uh, and and make the best show possible. Plus, it's just really fun to talk about games. That's why we're doing this. Uh, and if you're listening to this, you probably feel the same way. And, and the Discord is the best place to do that. So we look forward to talking with you more then. Until next week, this has been another episode of Decision Space. We'd like to thank Hembry, as always, for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. And with that, we'll just ask you to have a great week and goodbye. Bye, all. Yeah.